0: Hello, and welcome back to the Glossy Week in Review podcast. I'm Danny Parisi. I'm Glossy's senior fashion reporter, and I am here with Glossy's editor-in-chief, Jill Manoff. Hello, Jill. How are you?
1: Hello, Danny. I'm good. How are you?
0: I'm very good, and I'm excited to have a little bit more of a businessy episode this week. I mean, we're always talking business, but this one particularly is going to be a little more on the the businessy side. So uh, we'll talk about Versace's new CEO, who comes from Alexander McQueen. And in turn, Alexander McQueen as a new CEO and all sorts of revolving door stuff is happening in luxury. Um, We'll talk about Landvin going public. Um, Actually, fun fact, they were public years ago and then were private in like early 2000s and are public again now. Um, And then finally, we will talk about Nike's latest earnings, specifically what they mean for the company's wholesale and direct businesses. There's definitely some interesting movement there. Um, but let's start talking about Versace. So Alexander McQueen, I think last week announced that their CEO, Emmanuel Ginsberger, was exiting. And then just a couple of days later, Monday, um, he was announced to be taking over as CEO of Versace. Alexander McQueen was going to have John Filippo Testa, who's an executive at Gucci, will will take over as CEO there. Um, it's to me, and we can talk about like Ginsberger and stuff in a second. But to me, the most notable thing about this was just... The difference in in strategy between Caring, which owns Alexander McQueen, and Capri Holdings, which owns Versace, which is that Caring, if you look at a lot of their executive hires, it's like a lot of internal promotions or plucking people from one Caring brand and like moving them up to another Caring brand. There's a lot of movement within their brands, and Capri is like with this move, grabbing somebody from a competitor, you know, from a competitive. Group so uh, to me that speaks to Capri kind of just still being a little bit upstarty compared to Caring or LVMH. You know, it doesn't have like the the breadth of brands or portfolio or talent to to pick from the way Caring does.
1: That's interesting, but also they have a fondness, a love for Versace. It seems because <laughs> um prior to Gitzberger, um the CEO of Versace was like a placeholder, a Michael Kors veteran. Um, Cedric mm-hmm. Wilmot prior, but while he he was stepping in because the CEO of Versace had gone to Burberry, but right. he, Jonathan Aykroyd, was formerly Alexander McQueen's CEO, just like oh. this Ginsburger fellow. So they've, so they've twice. plucked from, yeah, it's it's confusing, but they've plucked from Versace twice. I No, 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 from Alexander McQueen Versace's twice.
0: Versace's plucked from... <laughs>
1: Yes.
0: No, it that's is. I was. Care. I was getting a headache, like like <laughs> reading all these French names and stuff too. So,
1: yes, and and what, that's interesting what you're saying regarding caring because uh, yes, they're they're working like within their conglomerate, but I was also thinking the whole thing, the whole musical chairs. It's like incestuous in itself in terms of um, luxury brands borrowing from luxury brands. Like there aren't a lot of outside influences coming into the mix that could maybe bring fresh ideas and it maybe says something about the state of luxury and how it's going to I don't know recycle and maybe potentially remain stale or you know is this luxury established luxury mindset and and ways like is this required to to lead a luxury brand this day and age I I don't know
0: no I I think you're right it's definitely it's very revolving door kind of um scenario and I, I I noticed the same thing you did like in Looking up all these names, I was like, well, this guy's formerly of this brand, but he's formerly of that brand, but they plucked their CMO from this or CEO from this other brand. All the like big luxury fashion houses are sort of like stealing each other's guys all the time.
1: You said guys, all these white guys.
0: (laughs) Yeah, specifically guys. Cause, and, and like, I feel like a lot of times they put like more diverse people, um, in like the like other roles. But when you get to CEO, it's like almost always just like an old French white guy. Um, although to be fair, sometimes it's an old white British guy. So there is a little Mm -hmm. diversity there too. Um, but uh, again, like the interesting thing for me too, is that Capri is, is still like, they're a big company They're They're by no means like an underdog, but I think compared to caring or LVMH, especially LVMH they are definitely like, um, like the small fry of the gigantic luxury conglomerates. Um, and so, even the fact that they are stealing talent like from the more legit, like from Gucci or from whoever, you know, that's, a, I think that's a good sign for them that they're kind of like inching up a little to be kind of on the same level with those companies, even though they're still, I think, uh, significantly smaller.
1: Yeah, it, it, it's interesting timing. Um, just we, I think we talked about last week, the, the, Alexander McQueen big show in New York like they just had a great mm-hmm. moment they're in I don't know everybody was really um I mean we had a critical point uh, take in regard to their mushroom show but um it was yeah. they got a lot of press it it seemed like it was a success and it made waves um so for him to be yeah switching gears like why now and I guess it's definitely a, a successful high um, fast growth brand Alexander McQueen and Versace has a lot of aspirations in terms of opening stores and growth. And um, it does make sense, I would say.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and to be fair, we were critical of Alexander McQueen last week, but they have like been super successful, especially the last couple of years with Sarah Burton. And and all of that was under Ginsberger, like uh, under his leadership. So um, we will see if if the if Versace can have the same sort of magic that Alexander McQueen had. One more final point is also that the two brands are pretty comparable, even though their parent companies are, are a little different. Um, they're both like close to, but under a billion dollar revenue. Like I kind of think they're in sort of a similar, um, like neither of them are like a Louis Vuitton big, but they're both like, like super, you know, legit popular luxury brands. They're kind of in the same wheelhouse. Um, so in that sense, like it's good for Capri that they have, a brand of that caliber that can recruit talent like from those comparable brands, you know, for
1: sure. And it would be interesting. Like, I wonder if it is a challenge or, um, I'm sure it's something to navigate with Ginsberger coming into the Versace family, which it's a family. I think of it as a family, you know, Gianni Versace, Donatella Versace, mm-hmm. Donatella is still there. I'm sure she has a lot of ownership in the way things are done, um, in the creativity of, or the creative, um, expression of the brand. Um, obviously. So, I mean, I'm sure she'll be, play an active role despite her not having a CEO title in in terms of the direction Mm. of the brand.
0: Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see if um, Ginsberger, who like, you know, maybe I just, uh, he flew under my radar, but I feel like he's not like the most um, public facing kind of guy. I wonder if his working relationship with Sarah Burton or sorry, with Donatello Versace will, how that will compare to working with someone like Sarah Burton, because just because Donna Versace has been like a institution for like decades at this point, you know, and she's like very much like, she is the the face of the brand um, in iconic. the way that-
1: iconic.
0: <laughs> right, like it's literally, it's called Versace, whereas Alexander McQueen like has had a lot of different creative directors and CEOs and and doesn't have like one person like super, super closely associated with like the core of the brand in the same way. Anyway, we'll keep an eye on it. But let's talk about Lanvin, um, another uh, big luxury company. So uh, as I said earlier, they were public in their very old brand, like from the 1880s. Um, and they were public for a while. But then in 2001, they they went private. And then this week and on Tuesday, they went public again, or they're going public um, after merging with Primavera Acquisitions Corp um, and valued at like one and a half billion dollars or something. So it's, it's a big company. Um, and their revenue, according to them anyway, is supposed to, they're projected to triple to over a billion dollars by 2025. Um, but the thing that stood out to me about this is that this, so this is Landvin group, which is like Landvin plus several other brands that frankly I have not heard of, but it's like, seems like it's mostly Landvin, but it's multiple brands. Um, they're, I think the luxury world is like very hostile if you are not a caring or LVMH associated brand or Capri Holdings. So they're like, or, or someone like Telfar that's like indie and, but has its own sort of niche carved out. And it just seems like it's, it's a tough world if you're <laughs> not either part of a huge conglomerate or like an established indie in that way. So I feel like Lamvin sort of like kind of in the middle.
1: Yeah, honestly, I, the, and this group includes Sergio Rossi, the Lanvin group, um, St. Mm. John, St. John, Wolford. Like mm. St. John was really top of mind. I just talked to the CEO in October. Um, and I just remember this stat that, you know, this brand is 59 years old. It's the oldest American luxury ready-to-wear brand, um, older mm. than Ralph Lauren, which is 54, older than Calvin Klein, which is 53. Um, and I literally, hello, the minute it's Lanvin.
0: <laughs> oh, <sorry. laughs> um, that like
1: no I'm just saying but like the <laughs> the name how I always am like how do you say it um it, it's a French so obviously that's not American but my mind first went to hey hey we keep telling this story of who um I guess who's going to be come to life as this um big American conglomerate that can rival mm-hmm. caring and that can rival lvmh this ain't it like the only American brand in the mix is St John and then like mm-hmm. Wolford is like, from Austria and like Sergio Rossi is Italian. It's really this hodgepodge of brands, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is, is, is interesting in itself. Um, but again, on the note of this, like, obviously this is a move to scale in a big way. Um, and when I talked to St. John in October, they had 37 stores, which, you know, over di- divided between four, four brands. Um, I think that at the time, uh, they they were ro- growing slowly. Um, now Landvin mm-hmm. Group is saying they want to open over 200 more st- new stores by 2025. Um, it did. I'm not really sure where that will be concentrated between the brands, but um, interesting yep. the amount of scaling they're planning to do.
0: Yeah, for sure. And then the other thing that was so funny to me, and I know that this is like technically a normal like kind of business thing, but it's always funny to me when I see it. So in the the news about this, there's all these like numbers like, wow, our revenue is projected to triple, all this stuff. And then it's like, by the way, we are not profitable and are losing a $100 million a year. <laughs> and I, again, like I know there are plenty of like, quote unquote, successful brands that like are not actually making money and are losing it, but it's still, it doesn't feel right to me to sort of like brag about your company when you're like, oh, and we run at a deficit of 130 million. Like, I'm just like, to me, it seems like the the basic measure of success is are you making more money than you're spending? But I, I guess not. <laughs> I, again, I don't want to sound naive. I know that that is common, but it's just, it's very, it's always funny to me when I see it.
1: Yeah, it is funny. And in addition to opening stores, They want to um, acquire more luxury brands, it seems as part of expand the portfolio. So they want to be spending a lot more money. So (laughs) we'll see how that profitability plays out.
0: It's funny when you're like already losing $130 million a year to be like, and by the way, we're going to like casually buy a designer brand or something. I think there's even a quote in like Vogue Business or something where they, or or WWD, where they're like, yeah, like maybe someone kind of designery like upscale or something. It's like, (laughs) yeah, we just casually might drop a couple hundred more million dollars on like a new thing. And like they're going to have... Presumably investor money and stuff coming in from from going public, but it's just it's just funny to me, especially given what we were just saying. That luxury is very competitive if you're not part of one of the big groups. Um, and one of the well, the other thing is a, a lot of times brands struggle, I think, because they have too many stores, and that's definitely not an issue for Landvin or Lanvin, Um Lanvin. because like you said, they they only have a couple dozen stores, and I think a lot of comparable luxury brands of like hundreds you know so yes. w- so at least they're not overextended that way um but the 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 deficit that they're running at i think is would be concerning to me especially given all the talk about spending that they're doing
1: yeah it's in, and it's interesting i think uh the last luxury brand um that we heard that went public it was well group Xenia, which was
0: god was it yes. within the last year um yeah I think okay. we, we just talked about that a couple of weeks ago, didn't we?
1: We so. totally did. And the one of the um, points, like, anyway, something that really stood out was their plan, particularly Tom Brown, to open hundreds of stores. Um, and this is, again, happening um, with this announcement. So obviously, um, stores are a means of growth, or as these brands see it. And um, anyway, yeah, a lot of commonalities between the two.
0: Yeah, for sure. Okay. Let's talk about our last story of the day, which is Nike. Um, Nike had their quarterly earnings on Tuesday and normally, you know, earnings are interesting and stuff or whatever, just, you know, especially a company like Nike, that's big and important. And, and what's going on with them says a lot about like what's going on with retail or fashion or whatever in general. But the, the one thing that I wanted to focus on was some of the things they said about, um, their wholesale and like some of the numbers around wholesale and DTC. I think people have known that Nike has been moving towards selling more stuff themselves through their stores, through their online stuff, through their app, um, and less so through partners like Foot Locker and stuff. Um, there's this stat, uh, from the earnings, which was that there's Nike's own store sales rose 14% and their online sales rose 19%, but their wholesale sales fell 1%. Um, and it's probably going to fall even more. Um, so, that actually, you know what? I'll say one more stat too, which is not from Nike's <laughs> earnings, but from Footlocker's earnings a couple months ago. Footlocker said they sold, it was like 75% of their sales in 2020 were from Nike in 2021, that was 70. And then this year it's going to be under 55. So it's like dropping very fast and Foot Locker. And it is, it's harsh. And like their, their shares like dropped after that because the investors don't want to hear that Foot Locker is not going to be selling as much Nike. Nike is just so big for them. So Nike going DTC is more than just important for Nike. It's important for like all of these other Re- retailers big and small like but Foot Locker but also little sneaker boutiques all over the place that get like absolutely rely on Nike for for sales you know
1: Absolutely. I think that the standout quote for me, I think it was from the CEO of Nike uh, on the earnings that was um, just, we are focused on what we can control. And that is direct sales through their e-commerce, through their stores. Um, and we know, you know, months back, there, there was, again, a crazy stat about the number of shoes that were, um, I guess, out of commission, stuck o- stuck away at factories that that they weren't able to sell in in the cr- course of a quarter, um, and so obviously, I'm sure there was a sense of being out of control. And we heard this throughout the pandemic that brands found saw the value in direct sales. A lot of people, a lot of these brands are not the Nikes of the world, and um, maybe that that that's not feasible um, when there are wholesale outlets that you know, provide marketing and provide um, more sales opportunities. But for Nike, they can definitely, um, yeah, ha- maintain control and do so effectively. I think that that is um, the name of the game.
0: And, and you could argue that they probably will have even more leverage to control their, like, whole, how their stuff is sold through wholesale. They can probably get more favorable terms, or like you know, have more control over how their shoes are sold and stuff, because they're doing less of it, and, and people need it so much. I've I've heard sort of very off, like offhand, anecdotally from from a couple of like sneaker boutiques that Nike can be kind of a pain to work with because they like are very demanding. They like uh, you know they make these requests of you, and you don't want to lose your business with Nike, so it's like uh, you know, and and they benefits, the boutiques benefit a lot from that, but it's definitely like one of those relationships where Nike clearly has like a lot of the power. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, for, for Foot Locker, it's one thing cause Foot Locker, they've got private label stuff that they've been launching, which I, I think is sort of preemptive knowing they're going to lose some of that business. Like they they've got other big shoe brands, like they're a giant company, but I, I think about a lot of the like small sneaker boutiques of which there are many like all over the country. Um, that I'm sure we'll be able to find merchandise elsewhere, but like not getting as much of it from Nike is going to be tough.
1: For sure. What was the, there was also a comment about, um, kids, Nike shoes continuing to sell through, through Foot Locker. I don't know if that's like permanent. I, the fact of the mm-hmm. matter is they are pulling back from wholesale and at the same time, Nike sales were up. They're beating expectations. Um, I don't think there's any backtracking cause it's proving successful.
0: Yeah, definitely. Okay, so that's our last story, but we're gonna try something new just very quickly. I thought it would be nice to, because we can review, we talk a lot about the stories that we didn't cover on glossy. So all the the three things we talked about today, there's no story on glossy.com because we were going to talk about it in the podcast. Um, but I wanted to just quickly take a minute and shout out one of the stories that we did write this week and next week we'll do the same thing. We'll, we'll highlight one of, you know, an exciting story that we did cover on glossy and we'll link it in the description and all that stuff. So I'm going to toot my own horn this week and say (laughs) that I wrote a story about Kanye West, um, and the, uh, insane amount of money that he makes for Gap and Adidas and Bonsiaga and like all the brands that he works with weighed against the just ridiculously bad negative press that he's gotten in in the last couple months. months um, and the ways that if it were anybody else, he probably would have been dropped a long time ago. But for the like truly insane amount of money that he makes for, I, I think Gap said when they dropped the hoodie, the Yeezy Gap hoodie, it was like the best e-commerce day like they've ever had just from that one day. So it, it there there's a whole story on Glossy about just that dynamic between the the two poles there. Um, and you can read it.
1: So it's interesting. Yes, you mentioned like why brands won't quit Kanye. Um, mm-hmm. Meanwhile, you mentioned the Grammys quit Kanye. Like, what, what's the criteria here? Like, it's just, I think that the Grammys, the Grammys aren't making money. (laughs) They may be making, go ahead.
0: Yeah. I think that's honestly what it is, is that like for gap. Yeezy is like almost like a separate brand, like owned by gap Inc. Kind of like when I actually reached out to them for comment for the story, the gap PR was like, Oh, there's a separate, there's an entirely separate PR for Yeezy gap. And you have to reach out to them. Of course they did not respond to me, but, um, and, and Kanye is, like, not only in control of the designs, but he's in control of, like, how it's sold, how it's marketed, like, the pricing. Every, it's, like, he basically is, like, a a, a separate brand within the company, um, and that's much harder to disentangle, I think, than something like the Grammys, which is just, like, canceling his performance or whatever, and, and they... Grammys honestly probably even benefits from it. they They might lose out a little bit, yeah, whatever like they don't get Kanye West to perform, but they can get other you know big names yeah. to perform and they get the good press of being sort of like you know, taking a stand. Um, so from I think that's the reason for me that that some someone like the Grammys or Coachella can do it a little more easily. I'm sure it hurts them to to cancel a big name like that, but someone like Gap is like they're they're deeply tied. To Kanye West, by now, you know.
1: Yeah, and is it more so in your eyes? Is it like he wasn't convicted? <laughs> like this is a little bit extreme, but like he wasn't convicted of a crime. It's kind of like in the public court of public opinion. Some people say that he is bordering on harassment or that he is harassing. Mm. Like it's not. It's it's more subjective, I guess. Like he. yeah go ahead
0: i i think gap is again they didn't respond to me so i'm I'm purely just speculating here but i think they're kind of just hoping it blows over you know and um because it would be so painful to disentangle they're sort of just like gonna zip their lip not say anything about it and just hope it kind of goes away um and um if it was like they were working with Kanye purely just as like he's the face of, you know, some campaign or something, that's much easier to to drop. And if he were, you know, convicted of a crime or something or, or something, I think, more extreme like that, maybe they would be moved to uh, and maybe possibly even legally required to do something. But I think until we get to that point, like they're they're in too deep, you know, so I, yeah. I'm not expecting any big statement from them. Except maybe, maybe in like the most vague, broad, perfunctory, like we don't condone any sort of harassment, like without naming names kind of <laughs> statement. Possibly we could see that, but um, I don't know.
1: Yeah, and I haven't skimmed their um, Instagram or their social channels. I don't. I haven't heard that there's like public outcry. Like, come on, Gap, drop Kanye. Like, there's just you know these select few voices that are saying you know what he's doing is wrong. Um, tell yeah. me, tell the tell the folks that are listening. Like, anyway, you mentioned it in your story. The power of Kanye in terms of driving sales. Um, obviously, yeah. if he if he drops a song, it's typically like number one on an on Apple that week. Like, he yeah. is powerful, despite the the critics, I would say. But yeah, how powerful yeah. in terms of driving sales?
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, I, so I got a couple sources of data for this for the story. Um, but like even just um, kind of indirectly, uh, I, I got a quote from Boohoo, the the like UK fast fashion people, where they said that he, he wore a balaclava, like a full face thing to Um, Paris fashion week. And then they were like 7,000% increase in searches for men's Valakava, like the day after. So um, there's, and there's lots of direct things you can attribute like Yeezy, the, the footwear line with Adidas is like humongous and has made so much money, but even just indirectly, he's just like an influential figure in, in culture. And, and he's specifically like at the nexus of like where a lot of fashion like intersects with like music and culture and the collectibles and like all this stuff, you know, like he is like the personification of like hype beast, high snobiety, like all the things that they cover and and that that world focuses on. He does them all, you know, like he does sneakers, he does music, he does art. Um, Thankfully, at this point, he doesn't do crypto as far as I know. And he (laughs) did. He did have that one statement where he was like, I want to make real things, not NFTs, which was like. Could have gone either way. I could have totally seen him become a big NFT guy or or this, which is him not being an NFT guy. So he's he's just very influential. And, and even with all the bad press, like, he, he has resisted bad press before. And something I talk about in the story is there's definitely a difference with this bad press compared to previous bad press in which, you know, he's said kind of uncouth things before. He's, like, been kind of weird and, like, probably is a PR person's nightmare but this is like the the stuff with like Pete Davidson I think is a very different scarier like less forgivable like feeling to it and and you've seen that in a lot of the coverage um the way people talk about it it's it's not like a funny but eccentric weirdness kind of thing it's like an unpleasant like scary type of behavior so and and like the public stuff with like various friends and and like former collaborators like Kid Cudi and Jay-Z and and like you know the bizarre stuff he says and does with them <laughs> it's it's just like i think again if it were anybody else he would have been out the door like so long ago but again he just makes a ton of money for Gap and, and the other people he works with so that's the that's the the crux of it i think If you, uh, if you haven't rated or reviewed the podcast, um, the glossy podcast, please do so, whether it's on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to this, that really helps a lot. If you haven't done so already, um, please subscribe. Not only can you hear me and Jill talking every Friday, but every Wednesday you'll hear Jill talking to some very exciting industry insiders in fashion. Jill, who are you talking to next week?
1: Yes. Next week, I'm talking to Nadia Bujarwa. She is the CEO of Dia oh, & yeah. Co, which is, yes, really um, pioneering, leading the space in terms of um, offering inclusive sizing, which this is the way it should be. So check it out.
0: Cool. All right. Well, that's what we've got coming up next week. Thank you so much, Jill. It's always a great talking to you. And thank you for listening.